I'm going to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn in it to Judges chapter 10 and 11. And if you want to use the Bible in front of you to follow along, I'd encourage you to do that. You can turn to page 210. We'll be 210, 211, and 212. Now, this morning, in terms of our series through the book of Judges, we have actually met the, we're at the midpoint of the book in terms of half the book is after it, half the book was before it. And as we went through the first half of the book, we've kind of gone through what's known as the cycle of Judges a number of times, but in some ways, it might be more accurate to say instead of a cycle, it might be more accurate to describe it as sort of a a spiral of decline. I mean, it keeps going around, but it keeps getting worse and worse and worse. In fact, from this point forward, everything really is going to get worse. So the last time that they saw the words, you know, the land had rest, which was a phrase used in the first half, the last time that was used was in Judges chapter 8, verse 28. The land isn't going to have any rest. There is nothing going to be positive in that sense or upbeat going forward. It just keeps getting worse. See, part of what's happening is God rescues the people and brings them back to freedom, and they keep running back to failure again and again and again. They just keep running back to failure repeatedly. And I think one of the things we need to acknowledge, one of the things we need to maybe face in our own lives is that when you keep going back to failure, you keep going there again and again and again. It leaves marks in our lives. It will impact us. And I think that should sober us. You see, sin is serious. And if we keep running back to sin, it will leave marks on our lives that impact us, but also has ripple effects and will impact other people. It will do things to us we don't want. Which is maybe why as we come to the beginning of Judges 10, or well, really verse 6, but this, this next section of Judges, that verse 10 or chapter 10 starts with heaviness. Judges chapter 10, verses 6 to 9 read this way. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Asheroth. They served the, the, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hands of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan in the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim so that the house of, so that Israel was severely distressed. You know, verse 6 really paints this picture of the people of Israel embracing anything they could other than God. They walked away literally from the true God who brought them into the promised land, who'd taken them out of Egypt, brought them into the promised land, and they walk away from him. And they constantly and repeatedly again and again and again turn to the gods of the land. They just keep going there. They repeatedly go there. And verse 7 says, God addresses them strongly. As we go through the rest of chapter 10 and in through verse uh, chapter 11, We're going to meet a guy named Jephthah. You can kind of call this the Jephthah story part of the book. But as it unfolds, what we're going to see, I think, are significant impacts 
that failure brings to our lives. As we constantly keep going back to failure, these are the marks that it's going to bring in our lives. So we need to talk about that. So we are going to talk about that, but I want to talk about more than that. I want us also at the end to say, is there a way that you and I, instead of being impacted by failure constantly, can move back to freedom? So that's what we're going to try to do this morning. But first, we've got to talk about what's the impact of failure. Now, I said we want to look at those impacts, and now I'm going to say let's hit the pause button just for a second. Because I want us, before we jump in and look about failure, I want us to think about something that Jesus said. See, in Matthew 22, the Lord Jesus was asked to distill down the Old Testament to its essence. In some ways, to really offer to us sort of what should be the focus of our lives. What does God desire our lives to be about? And Jesus answered and responded this way in Matthew 22, verse 37 to 40. And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Okay, Jesus said what our lives should be about is loving God and loving people. Really quickly, if you keep running back to failure, that's not what your life's going to be about. In fact, it'll be about the opposite of that. So what does the impact of failure look like? Well, picture number one, the impact of failure, what it looks like is manipulating God to do what I want. When I keep running back to failure, one of the impacts in my life is I'm going to want to manipulate God to get him to do what I want. You know, the people realize after 18 years, this is not a good thing. So they're like, hey, let's start that cycle and let's run to God and see if he'll solve our problem in essence. Judges chapter 10, verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we've sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. Now, they are affirming that they've done wrong, and, and they have done wrong, so you got to say that's a good thing. But it almost seems like their statement is pointing to kind of say, hey, God, um, we've done wrong. Now it's your time to solve our problem. Maybe another way to look at it is it's almost as if they're coming as they keep going through this cycle, this spiral of decline. They kind of get this attitude that says, God, I've got a problem. I've got a need. You've got to solve it. That's kind of how they seem to be coming. That's sort of how they are approaching things. So you say, well, how does God respond when you kind of make that demand on him? Well, verses 11 to 14 are not exactly warm, fuzzy verses. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you from the Egyptians and the Amorites, from the Ammonites, from the Philistines, the Sidons also? And the Amalekites and the Manoites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of their hand? Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. Now, verse 6, it showed the seven gods... Seven false gods that they had run to, the people of Israel had run to. And now, kind of in contrast to that, in verses 11 and 12, God lays out seven times he brought them victory. Seven times. 
And yet, how do they respond to God doing this victory? They keep running back to the other gods. God brings them complete salvation. And they keep going to failure. They keep walking away from God and going to other stuff. And with that knowledge, with that recognition, God says, that's it. I'm not saving you anymore. Now, what's going on here? Well, I think God knows something about them they need to know, and God knows something about us in a sense. You see, they're focused on themselves, and they're really only coming to God because they want to fix a problem. But they had clearly forgotten the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, folks, I don't want us to miss the implication all of this kind of points to. They were playing games with God. You and I can do the exact same thing. We can treat God and the things of God as if they're a tool to help us live better lives, or even in a sense, we can treat God as if God's like AAA. You know, we call him when we need emergency road service, but that's it. We can go to God, I'm in a pickle, God solve it, and then we forget about him again. Now let me be clear. God does help people in our times of need. But that is never meant to be the totality of God's involvement in our lives. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, it declares that Jesus came as Emmanuel, which means God with us. We are meant to live our lives connected to Jesus. And in connection with Jesus, we're meant to live in a way that he is doing a work in us to conform us, to be like him, to be conformed to the image of Christ. Or to use another word, he's doing a work in our lives to make us holy. That's a work he wants to do in our lives. But what are the people in Judges 10 doing? Are they trying to be holy? No, they're trying to manipulate God. And we can do the exact same thing. You and I can play games and try to manipulate God. Judges 10, verse 15 and 16. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now, there's a lot of debate around these two verses, trying to understand what's being communicated. I mean, are the people truly repenting? I mean, it says they serve the Lord. Are they truly repenting? Or is this just kind of another element of manipulation? They're kind of heightening and working their game. It's not clear. And the second half of verse 11 is somewhat vague. That word impatience is hard to translate, but there's a lot of emotion there. And it seems in that word that's hard to translate, that's translated impatient, it seems as if the repeated failure of Israel is causing God, in a sense, to feel some things. He's feeling sad on one hand, yet he's also tired of their misery. I think what it's communicating is something like this, is God wants so much more for them than what they were experiencing. He didn't want them to keep living in failure. 
See, you and I need to understand something. God wants more for us than we realize, more than we often grasp, more than we take advantage of embracing. God wants more for you and me than a life of failure and sin and repeatedly going back to that. But the truth of the matter is, folks, when you and I keep running back to sin and keep running back to failure, keep forgetting God and going to other things, we're going to be marked by that. And part of the mark of that is we go to this game of manipulation. And it's never going to be good. It's never going to work out well. Picture one of when failure impacts us, keeps impacting us, is we want to manipulate God. So surprise, surprise, what do you think picture number two is going to be? It's going to be manipulating people to do what I want. I mean, we said earlier that failure is the exact opposite of loving God and loving people. So we probably shouldn't be surprised. There's going to be people manipulation. Chapter 10 ends in verse 17 and 18 this way. Then the Ammonites were called to arms, and they encamped in Gilead. And the people of Israel came together, and they encamped at Mizpah. And the people, the leaders of Gilead, said to one another, Who is the man who will begin to fight against the Ammonites? He shall be head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. Well, they're in a really bad spot. And they don't want to be in a bad spot. They want to be in a spot of control. They want it back. And so in essence, they're on a plan to say, well, every time we've been rescued from failure and brought back to freedom, it's because we've had a leader. So who's that leader going to be? Normally God appoints it, but God said, I'm not saving you anymore. So what do they do? Well, chapter 11 begins this way, verses 1 to 6. Now Jephthah the Gileite... Notice this, was a mighty warrior, but he was the son of a prostitute. Gilead was the father of Jephthah, and Gilead's wife bore him sons. And when his sons grew up, they drove Jephthah out and said to him, you shall not have an inheritance in our father's house, for you are the son of another woman. Then Jephthah fled from his brothers and lived in the land of Tov, and worthless fellows collected around Jephthah and went out after him. And after a time, the Ammonites made war against Israel. And when the Ammonites made war against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to Jephthah from the land of Tov. And they said to Jephthah, come and, and be our leader that we may fight against the Ammonites. Now they had played games with God, trying to manipulate God. And there's a sense in which that's the exact same thing they're doing here with Jephthah. They're playing a game. The message of verse 6, in a sense, is, Jephthah, we want to use your skills. So they're saying, come be our leader in this battle. We want to utilize your skills to solve our problems so we're winning. We want to have control. Jephthah, I think, is sophisticated or smart enough to realize, hey, they're trying to manipulate me. So he takes their invitation to be used by them as a way to enter into negotiations with them and quite honestly probably manipulate them right back. Verses 7 to 11. But Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, Did you not hate me and drive me out of my father's house? Why have you come to me now when you are in distress? He's playing hard to get. 
And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, Well, that is why we have turned to you now, that that you may go with us and, and fight against the Ammonites. And now they're changing their tune and be head. Leader wasn't as strong a word as head will be. O head over all the inhabitants of Gilead. And Jephthah said to the elders of Gilead, If you bring me home again to fight against the Ammonites, and the Lord gives them over to me, I will be your head. He's manipulated himself to have the power position. And the elders of Gilead said to Jephthah, The Lord will be a witness between us if we do not do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders of Gilead, and the people made him head and leader over them. And Jephthah spoke all these words before the Lord at Mitzvah. Now, I want to make something clear. Jephthah and the people of Gilead, the leaders of Gilead, they're using the name of the Lord here. So you'd say, oh, God must be, his hand must be in this and be a part of this. But the reality is, that's, they're not really looking to say, God, is it your will for Jephthah to lead us? They're not. They're simply using God's name in their negotiation thing. In essence, their conversation is between two parties who are using each other. The Gileads need a military leader. Jephthah's a mighty warrior, but he doesn't want to just be a warrior. He wants to be the boss. They manipulate each other to get what they both want. Now, here's the thing. Some commentaries were the ones that kind of pointed me that there's a lot of manipulation going on here. So I decided I'm just going to do a little research into manipulation. And by that, I don't mean I tried to manipulate someone, not intentionally, not at least in this case. But I I did some research on manipulation and found out that one of the reasons why we think we try to manipulate one another is because we want power and control. There's a longing in us to have power, to have control over something. You see, one of the damages of sin One of the damages that happens when we keep going again and again and again back to false gods is our souls can be deeply marked with this hunger. We want power. We want control. We want authority. See, we want to call the shots. We want things to go according to our plans. I need to acknowledge something about my own soul. When I dabble and play with sin, Part of what's going to be coming out of me is this quest to have power, to have control, to have authority, to have things go my way. And as that clings to my soul, that desire clings to me and and kind of spreads out, we move away from God and we move away from each other. I don't think that sounds like loving God and loving people, but that's where we go. That's what failure does. There's a third picture of failure, a third impact. When we keep playing with impact, what does it do? Third impact is it leads us to bargaining with God to get him to act. See, we can manipulate God, manipulate people, and then we started bargaining with God. Now, we're going to jump over part of the story. Okay, we're going to jump over to the end of chapter 11. We'll come back and pick up more of chapter 11 in a minute, but we're going to jump down to verse 30 and 31. Okay, Jephthah is the leader. He's going to engage in battle, and it says these words. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up 
for a burnt offering. Jephthah realizes he's got a big challenge in front of him, and he's like, okay, God, I know I need help, so God, if you help me, I'm going to do this burnt offering thing for you. That's what I'm going to do. God, I'll do this for you. If I do this thing, if, if you help me, I'm going to do this thing for you. Now, just to be really clear, this is one of the sad parts of Judges. It's not this, I'm not sure what the saddest part is, but this is pretty sad, okay? So put your seatbelts on. This is gross, okay? You've all been warned. Verse 34 to 36. Then Jephthah came to his home in Mitzpah, and behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She's his only child. Besides her, he has neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble for me. For I opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father, you have opened your mouth to the Lord. Do to me according to what has gone out from your mouth, now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites." Jephthah and Israel win. They have this great victory, and he comes home. And he knew he'd made this promise, this vow thing, and who comes out of his house first? His daughter. He's devastated. But his daughter says, hey, you need to follow through. Now, in the background, there's almost this sense that God must be some kind of big, meanie, violent guy wanting to bring blood and, and just devoted to seeing hurt. I mean, that's the kind of setup. That's kind of the picture being painted right in this moment by Jephthah. That's what God must be about. He's like, oh, no, I got to do this. And his daughter's like, yeah, Dad, I'm, I support you, which is bizarre. She just says, hey, can I have two months? So he lets her go have two months for her to lament and mourn and all those things, and she comes back. Verses 39 and 40. At the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileite for four days in the year. Let me be clear. This whole scene is really hard to process. And we could get into a lot of intricacies here, and part of me wants to because then I can avoid some things, but here's the truth. It would appear that Jephthah did do his daughter exactly what he said. He offered her as a burnt offering. Now that creates even more questions and even more problems. Well, let me make two observations and then give you two reasons why I think this happened. Okay, observation number one. According to Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 31, and it's not the only place, but it's the first place in Scripture, God makes it very clear that this kind of thing, burnt offering of your children, is totally and completely something God is against. Second observation. Based on the principle behind Leviticus chapter 27 verses 1 to 8, Jephthah, if he really felt like he had to do this vow could have paid 20 shekels and it would have released his daughter. It would have freed the thing. In essence, folks, what happened did not need to happen. 
God had a provision. Even if he made a stupid, wrong vow, my grandson's going to be after me because I use the word stupid. I think it's appropriate here. This didn't need to happen, so why did it happen? Well, let me suggest to you, I think there's two reasons at play why it happened. First was this. I believe Jephthah was undoubtedly warped by the sin, all that was around him, the world he was living in. You see, some of the gods that we read about in Judges chapter 10, verse 6, were worshipped. It was the highlight, the most devoted thing you could do to worship some of those gods was to offer your child as a burnt offering. Okay, that warped him. Second reason, I already hinted at it, Jephthah had a warped view of God. He was not seeing God with clarity. God is not into hurting people. Now here's the thing. What do you and I do with this hard, sad, disturbing stuff? How does this apply to us? Like, I'm hoping none of you have been going back and forth today going, you know, at lunchtime I'm thinking I need to sacrifice one of my kids. Like, we don't do that. Or do we, in a sense? See, folks, I honestly believe these verses are saying some things not just about Jephthah, but are saying some things about us. And that is this, that we are more damaged by sin than we realize. And our grasp of who God is is far from complete and accurate. So why do you say that? Well, let me just give you sort of a rapid fire answer to why I say that. Romans chapter 8, verse 29 makes it clear we need to be conformed to Christ. Okay, there's something profound that needs to happen in our lives. Romans chapter 12, verse 2 says we need to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Being conformed and transformed are not light, simple things. Those are pretty radical changes that need to happen in our lives. Think about the ministry of Jesus with the 12, uh, 12 disciples who became the apostles. Jesus was investing himself in them to equip them, knowing things needed to happen in their lives. Not to mention that, but 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 declare to us that God gave us his word to equip us, to change us. There's things you and I believe we shouldn't believe. There's things we don't believe we need to believe. There's things we do we need to stop doing. There's things that we aren't doing we need to start doing. This Bible is about us being changed. And if that's not enough... I want you to think very particularly with me about the gospel. When we talk about people being followers of Jesus, and by that we mean a follower of Jesus, is not somebody who says, has a t-shirt that says, Jesus is my homeboy. Being a follower of Jesus means I realize that when he went to the cross and died in my place for my sins and rose again, I need to respond to that. And I respond to that by repenting of my sins and trusting Jesus alone as my Savior. And I need to realize when I do that, that God the Father and God the Son send God the Holy Spirit, the one who has the power of the resurrection, brings the Holy Spirit into my life. Why? To transform me. To change me from the inside out because I am more damaged by sin than I realize 
and I need a way clearer vision of who God is than I have. Folks, as people who are damaged by sin, as people who can easily run again and again and again back to failure, we can do terrible things. We can manipulate God. We can try to manipulate people. We can try to bargain with God. That is what failure looks like. I mentioned it, I think it was last week, like I'm thinking, who was the idiot who picked doing a series in Judges? Oh yeah, that was me. I find this, some of this stuff just so sad. And these two chapters, they're just sad. They're bad, they're wrong. And I don't want us to live there. I don't want to live there. Siri thing is, I can live there. So how do we as people drawn to failure, how do we move toward God's freedom? Freedom he wants us to live in. Quickly, from jumping back into the middle part of the story in chapter 11, I think there's three steps, okay? Step number one, to move us back to freedom would be this. We need to remember God's mission. Now, really what we're talking about there is verse 12 through verse 26 of Judges 11. I hope you either read it in advance or you can read it this afternoon. But really what happens in those verses is that because of the conflict, the deal with the conflict with the Ammonites, Jephthah starts by walking through history, the history of Israel and the theology behind it to say, hey, God's working and moving. Now, here's the thing. I get it that a lot of times we might think, hey, you know, reading history, yeah, that's for some people, but wow, that's not for me. I don't get into history. And so we skip huge chunks of the Bible because it's like history, and we're like, I don't need that. Folks, can I tell you something? You and I need to be reminded again and again and again of God's mission. And when we read the history parts of Scripture, we are reminded both of God's goodness and the actions he did, the things he did for his people. Those accounts tell us again and again that God works for his glory and for our good. And when you and I are reminded of what God does constantly, what it does is it pulls us away from failure, moves us away from a distorted view of who God is and helps us see in clarity the God who's offering us freedom. Now, folks, I think there's an implication in that and maybe a heightened implication in that for some of us that have known Jesus a really long time. Wednesday, this coming Wednesday, will mark 42 years ago that I trusted Christ as my Savior. Some of you have known Christ a lot longer than that. But you know what? Even if you have known Jesus 84 years, you still need to be reminded of his mission. That was kind of drilled into my head a couple weeks ago. I was reading a book by a guy named John Owen on indwelling sin. And at the end of the book, right near the end, he started to talk about people that had been following Jesus for a really long time. And he made the observation that even if you followed Jesus a really long time, 
you still need to battle with indwelling sin. It's still present danger. See, it's easy for us to say, well, it's only young people. It's only the youth, people that have known Jesus a brief time. They're the ones that go back to failure. That's a lie from the pit of hell when you look at how many people follow, seemingly follow Jesus for a long time and then drop off. You and I need to remember Jesus' mission. We need to remember he is working. Second step we need to take, we also need to submit to his ruling. See, if we don't submit to him, we already have said, we have this desire for power. We have this desire for authority. But what you need more than power and authority is you need one who is the power, who is the authority. Judges chapter 11 and verse 27 says this, I therefore, Jephthah is talking to the king of Ammon, I therefore have not sinned against you, and you do me wrong, making war on me. The judge... The Lord, the judge, decide this day between the people of Israel and the people of Ammon. Now, Jephthah's closing statement there really, I think, reveals the irony of this whole book. See, in the book of Judges, people are living like there is no king, like there is no authority. They need to make their own authority. But Jephthah at least is acknowledging, you know what? There is a true king, and there is a judge. But people weren't submitting to him. Folks, failure is waiting for us around the corner, which means we need to ask the question, how do I go the right way? How do I stay on the path? Well, I stay on the path when I trust Jesus, when I trust him as my Savior, and when I submit to him as I live life, which means I need to ask you, have you trusted Jesus as your Savior? And are you submitting to him every single day? Step three to going away from failure and coming to freedom would be this. Be empowered by his spirit. Look at verse 29 with me. Then the spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead he passed on to the Ammonites. God gave victory before Jephthah ever made the vow. The stupid vow he didn't need to make. You know what? You and I, we don't need to bargain with God to get him to work. No. God puts his spirit in his people to empower his people to live in freedom, to live in victory. Please, please, please. Do not follow the path of judges, the path of decline, the path of failure. Please follow the path of the true judge. The one who takes us to freedom, but he doesn't just take us to freedom and say, here it is. Good luck. He literally empowers us with his spirit so we can live out in freedom. There's a lot of ugly because we're drawn to failure. But our God is inviting us to freedom. Would we remember that? Would we submit to him in that? And would we be empowered by his spirit to live it out? Would you pray with me? Father, I am grateful to you for your word and your truth.
And I am grateful to you in the midst of a lot of stuff that's ugh. You bring enormous and incredible beauty. Father, into a world where there is a lot of brokenness, into our lives where there's a lot of things that are marked by our sin. You bring freedom. You bring transformation. Lord, I pray and I ask, would we be turning to you? Would we be following you? Would we be living knowing there is a true king and a true judge? Father, I thank you for the freedom you offer us in Christ. Would we receive that from you? And would we embrace you for your honor and your glory? Thank you, Father, for the chance to be here. We thank you for our Savior. May we go with him now. In his precious and powerful name we pray.